Benedict Forum is an outreach of the St. Francis of Sales Catholic Church here in Holland. The goal of the St. Benedict Forum is to share the intellectual, cultural, and spiritual riches of the Catholic tradition with both college and the wider community. I'm very glad to see the wider communities is coming up to us. The St. Benedict Forum exists to provide intellectual and spiritual formation for the students at Oak College. And we're very pleased to be able to bring Joseph Pierce here for our first event this year. Joseph Pierce has a rather riveting story. He was born in England, where at a young age he became involved with a white supremacist group. Twice he was arrested for inciting racial hatred. But God clearly had other plans for him. I hope you'll come out tonight to hear the rest of that story. Mr. Pierce is a prolific author and a tour de force in the Catholic world. He has authored books on G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, Hilaire Bella, J.R. Tolkien, Shakespeare, and others. He has a lovely book on literary converts, 20th century literary giants who converted to Catholicism or Anglicanism. His newest book is called Beauteous Truth, Faith, Reason, Literature, and Culture. In short, Mr. Pierce has a book on most anything interesting <laughs> He's also the editor of the Ignatius Press Critical Editions. These are editions of classic texts with very solid commentary and essays uh, in the back about those great works. And these editions are very, very well worth reading, uh, especially the one that has my essay in it. It's also very great. <laughs> He's also the editor of the St. Austin Review, a journal of Catholic culture, literature, and ideas. Finally, Mr. Pierce also has a day job, uh, and he is currently the director of the Center for Faith and Culture and Writer-in-Residence at Aquinas College in Nashville, Tennessee. This afternoon, Mr. Pierce will speak on the Christian imagination of C.S. Lewis and J.A.R. Tolkien. <laughs> After his lecture, lecture there will be time uh, for questions. Please join me in welcoming Joseph Pierce. Imagination of J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Uh, this topic, actually, I find something of a challenge to speak on. Not, of course, because Lewis and Tolkien do not have a Christian imagination, uh, but because I give talks often on the Lord of the Rings, unlocking the Lord of the Rings. I give talks often on the Hobbit. Unlocking the Hobbit, and give talks often on the Chronicles of Narnia. Unlocking the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, but when you put C.S. Lewis uh, and Tolkien together, you're talking about a very big topic to do justice to in one solitary talk. 
And then you have a problem, well, how do you do it? Because I'm going to try to sort of unlock uh, the Lord of the Rings, the Hobbit, and the Chronicles of Narnia in one talk. I really won't do justice to any of them. So what I've decided to do is to actually concentrate on the Christian imagination of Tolkien and Lewis, um, and talk about what that was, how they influenced each other, and say something about the Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia, um, perhaps some of Lewis's other works, um, along the way. I'm going to start, actually, however, somewhat an unusual place. I'm going to start with a poem written and published in 1913. So when Lewis was only 15 years old, it's not by Lewis. When Tolkien would have been 21, it's not by Tolkien. But it is by a writer who was very influential on both Tolkien and Lewis, G.K. Chesterton. And I want to just quote the first stanza of his poem, The Morning English Road, to set the scene for Tolkien and Lewis and their Christian imaginations. Before the Roman came to Rye, or out to Severn strode, the rolling English drunkard made the rolling English road. A reeling road, a rolling road that rambles round the shire. After him the parson man, the sexton, and the squire. A merry road, a mazy road, and such as we did tread. The night we went to Birmingham by way of Peachy Head. The rolling English road and the rolling English road that rambles round the Shire. Because in both Tolkien and Lewis, we have this idealised view of what England, and by extension the world, should be. And as Chesterton says in his famous essay, The Ethics of Elfland, which was very influential in his book Orthodoxy, very influential on both Lewis and Tolkien, that earth does not judge heaven. Heaven judges the earth. And fairy stories do the same thing. They judge the earth from the perspective of heaven. In other words, not necessarily the way things are, but the way things should be, the way things ought to be. They show us the ideal. They show us the perfect much as Jesus Christ shows us the perfect human being. And even though none of us will ever reach that perfection, in seeing that perfection and using that perfection as our own goal, we don't become perfect, but we do become better. And the same thing with the great stories of Lewis and Tolkien. In reading them, we don't become perfect, but we do become better. So, Tolkien Shire owes a lot to Chesterton's, and uh, so I'm going to, if you like, start by looking at this idealised uh, view of the Shire that we get. Tolkien says he gave it a, 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 a scale of significance of his role as author and the work very important letter of his that we need to understand because what, what in that he's saying, what is it about me that's important to the writing of the Lord of the Rings? And uh, he says there are insignificant factors 
such as my personal life. And he uses the example, he talks about the obsession of biographers with the personal life of, of, of writers, and he says that's irrelevant. Uh, he says, I don't happen to beat my wife and nor am I drunk, but if I was those two things, I don't think that would affect my work in the least. I actually disagree with Tolkien, I think it would affect his work in the least. He would not have the harmony and order that we see in The Lord of the Rings if he was a wife beater of a drunkard. Um, but anyway, I can differ with Tolkien, that's, uh, that's fine. But the more important than that, he said the more significant factors include his taste in languages, which he says is obviously an important ingredient in The Lord of the Rings. And I, want to, I will say something about uh, Tolkien as a philologist, as a lover of languages, as a linguist, and how that's important to the Christian imagination that he employs. But he said, but more significant than that uh, is the fact that I was born in the Shire in a pre-mechanical age. Now, I'm going to have to disagree with Tolkien for the second time. <laughs> Even a rudimentary understanding of history tells us that Tolkien was not born in the Shire in a pre-mechanical age. He was born in Bloemfontein, South Africa, for starters. Um, <laughs> And he was born in 1892, which is 150 years after the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in England. Um, so what on earth is he talking about? The man mad? Well, his parents were both English, and he spent so little time in, in South Africa that it really, he remembers virtually nothing about it. The one thing that, that sticks in his memory uh, is the fact that when he was about two years old, he was bitten by a tarantula. Um, now, Tolkien denied that he was an arachnophobe, in spite of the fact that there are scary spider monsters in all of his books. <laughs> but I think that if you were bitten by a spider when you were two years old, that's almost as big as you are, you'd have the right to be a little bit scared of spiders. But apart from that, South Africa doesn't seem to have any major influence upon him. But he comes to live in England. And they live in Birmingham, which had been a village at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. But by the time Tolkien was living there in the 1890s, had become the second largest city in England. Those dark, satanic mills. And from Tolkien's uh, little house they lived in in poverty, they were poverty stricken because Tolkien's father died when, uh, when he was a child in South Africa. Um, the smoke was belching from the factory chimneys. The smoke was belching from the trains that were chugging past the back of their house. I was born in the Shire in a pre-mechanical age. What on earth is he talking about? But then the family moved to a little village. Seahol in Warwickshire. And there was a pond playing and trees to climb and no belching smoke. And I think that's the whole point. If he had just been born in that village, his vision of the Shire would not be anywhere near as magical. It's because he lived in the Shire, having experienced Mordor and Isengard, that the Shire becomes so potent and powerful in his imagination. So he began with the Shire. Now I want to talk 
about Lewis and Tolkien together and their friendship. When they first met in the 1920s, Tolkien was a, a Catholic, he was a lifelong practicing Catholic. Lewis was an atheist. Um, he'd read Chesterton and, uh, when he was a soldier in the trenches, World War I, and couldn't help liking Chesterton, despite the fact that Chesterton was a Christian. Anglican at that time, um, and he says, Chesterton has more common sense than all the moderns put together, except, of course, his Christianity. My word. Nine or something. Maybe that was Space Trilogy or something. So, um, Chesterton has more common sense than all the moderns put together, except, of course, his Christianity. But he continues to read Chesterton. And then in 1926, he reads Chesterton's book, The Everlasting Man, and says that I saw the Christian outline of history laid out before me for the first time in a way that made sense. But he was still not a Christian. That sort of was instrumental in his conversion from atheism to deism. So he now believed that God exists, but he wasn't sure that he liked him. <laughs> And then on September the 19th, 1931, Tolkien and Lewis, who are now bosom buddies, were having a long conversation with another friend about mythology, one of their favorite subjects. And in the course of this discussion about mythology, C.S. Lewis, the non-believer, said that myths are lies and therefore worthless. Even though breathe through silver. In other words, we like myths because they're beautiful. But ultimately, they don't tell us the truth, they tell us lies, and therefore, ultimately, they have no worth whatsoever. Well, this was like a red rag for Paul. Talking. He says, No, they are not lies. And then began to expound his philosophy of myth. I want to say something about that because I think this was so so powerful on C.S. Lewis that at the end of that, what he called that long night talk, um, he definitely began to believe in Christ and the Christian God. So this, if you like, was the missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle that uh, allowed Lewis to finally embrace Christianity. So very powerful. It's Tolkien's philosophy of myth. It's the final straw, if you like, that brings Lewis home. So let's take look, look at that something a little bit closer now. At the heart of um, Tolkien's philosophy of myth, first, first of all, is we have to understand, define our terms, always define your terms. My book, Beauty is Truth, that was mentioned, the whole of part one is defining our terms. You know, what do you mean by certain things? If we don't they're not talking in the same language, they're not communicating. So first of all, what is mythology? Well, in, in, in Tolkien's language and Lewis's language, because Tolkien and Lewis basically become one in this philosophy from this moment onwards. So now about Tolkien's philosophy of myth, it's Tolkien's and Lewis's philosophy of myth. Mythology or myth means story. It does not mean lie. Because the, the word myth in, in this day and age often 
means life. That, that's a myth. It means, it means not true. Well, that's not ever what Tolkien and Lewis mean when they use the word myth. They mean the word story. And they would basically begin by saying that um, God himself is the great storyteller. Or story has been sanctified by Christ. How does Christ teach us most of his important lessons through the use of parables? Now let's get one thing straight here. I hope I'm not being too controversial. I wish anybody to walk out here. But the prodigal son never existed. He was a figment of our Lord's imagination. So was his father. So was his brother, so were the pigs. <laughs> All figments of our Lord's imagination. He made it up. It's a story. It's not true. Except, of course, it is true. It's so true that every time anybody has heard that story for the last 2,000 years, they've seen how applicable it is to them personally. Something of the prodigal son in themselves something of the envious brother in themselves, something perhaps of the forgiving parent in themselves. Precious little the pig. <laughs> and of course, but beyond that, what Tolkien was saying, is that the greatest story that God ever told, it's a Hollywood movie, the greatest story ever told. But Christ doesn't tell that story with words, he tells that story with actions. And the story of history is his story. We're all in that story. So that's what Tolkien and Lewis mean by story, is that story is something to the very fabric of the cosmos in which we live. And at the centre of this philosophy of myth is what I call a hierarchy of creative value. We have to keep clear in our heads if we're going to make sense of this. A hierarchy of creative value. At the top of the hierarchy is the creator, God. Below that is creation. Those things made directly by God. Ex nihilo, from nothing. Below that is what Tolkien and Lewis would call sub-creation. What we do. It's called sub-creation, it's under-creation, and it uses creation to make things. Unlike God, we can't make things from nothing. We have to make things from other things that already exist. So a landscape artist will take an easel and a canvas and oils or watercolors and paintbrushes and his hands and his eyes and the sun and the clouds buildings and the hills, and all those things already exist. Put them all together, do things with them and make something new, a work of art, a work of sub-creation. This distinction is very, very important. And for Tolkien, there's even a subdivision of sub-creation, because there's sub-creation to the glory of God, what we might call art, at least as art, should be giving back to the giver of the gift, the gift itself. And then there's 
Subcreation for the utility of man. For our use. What might be called technology. Now I was giving a talk once, not this exact talk, but talking about the hierarchy of credit value. When I got to this part, they all started out, I was in Lisbon in Portugal. And they all started nudging each other and smirking and whispering to each other. I thought, well, and laughing. I thought, well, I haven't told a joke. There's nothing funny about What's going on here? So I interrupted my own talk and said, well, what was so funny about that? He said, well, this is an engineering school. <laughs> and I'd relegated them all to the bottom of the heap. <laughs> but what I said is that babe, all of these things are good. It's not that you know, the further down you get, they become bad. You know, good at the top, bad at the bottom. No, no, it's a hierarchy of goods. It's all good. Of course we need clothes to wear. Of course we need a, a roof over our heads. We need homes, clothes, other things. Gifts that we give them should be given back to the giver of the gift with the same generosity with which they were given. So using those gifts for the glory of God has to be higher. All right, the hierarchy taking value. Now I'm going to the Lord of the Rings, but I'm not going to say too much about it. I'm just going to set the scene, and then we're going to move off a little bit. Just, just real basic. Tolkien said in one of his letters, that the, I'm quoting him word for word here. The Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. Okay. Tolkien says it. Let's take it seriously. But then in the preface to the second edition of The Lord of the Rings, he says, The Lord of the Rings is not an allegory. And I despise allegory in all its forms. Okay. We have a problem here. Because there are those two statements don't fit very, very well side by side. And Tolkien has a legion of atheist and agnostic uh, lovers of his books that if they're learned and if they read will quote you the preface to the second edition of The Lord of the Rings said the Lord, Tolkien says, the Lord of the Rings is not an allegory and he despised allegory. There's no mention in the Lord of the Rings of Jesus Christ or the church or indeed any sort of organized religion. How can you possibly say it's a fundamentally religious and Catholic world? Well, I get with that for here. How would you reply to that? Anybody? with the atheist and flummox squirming in your seat. Evidently. Well, you have to think like lawyers, first of all. Because the first thing you should say is, your argument is not with me, it's with J.R.R. Tolkien. He's not. I'm not the one saying the Lord of the Rings is the fundamentally religious and Catholic work. Tolkien's saying it. Have your argument with him. Because the contradiction's his, not mine. But then what you can say is that, quote, other letters by Tolkien, a, a woman wrote to Tolkien and said, just after it was published, The Lord of the Rings, is The Lord of the Rings an allegory of atomic power? And Tolkien replied, dear madam, no, your sincerely, they <laughs> But he did actually expand upon it a little bit. 
So he said, no, it's not. But he said, but it is an allegory of power. Particularly power usurped for domination. But more than that, it's an allegory of death and immortality. Now, I could say more, I should say more, we may or may not have time to say more. We will have a QA session, so if you don't have one covered, ask a question on it. About what exactly what elements of the Lord of the Rings are an allegory of power, what elements of the Lord of the Rings are an allegory of death and immortality. That's for the, the, the talk, I talk about this in the talk on the Lord of the Rings that I give. But the point is that Tolkien here is calling the Lord of the Rings an allegory. And on other occasions, he talks about the Lord of the Rings being an allegory. But it depends which Tolkien you're listening to. Of course, Tolkien is guilty here of not defining his terms very clearly, and this is a problem. But I think what we need to do, Tolkien is a philologist, a linguist, so exactly in what way is the Lord of the Rings an allegory, and in what ways is the Lord of the Rings not an allegory? Because clearly Tolkien in some sense thinks it isn't, in other senses thinks it is. Well, we need to talk about allegories for a little while then, so we know what we're talking about. Because allegory comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes, and I want to go through some of them. Most basic form of allegory. Now, this is a talk on the Christian imagination. I don't know if you're all Christians, but you do all have imagination because that's one of the marks of God's image in you, imagination. So use your imagination. And imagine here is a black wall. Okay? You can see it. There. And I'm going to now pick up this piece of chalk. And I'm going to write something on the back. Scripture, sometimes called the fourfold exegesis, 
where St. Thomas says that every single thing we read in Scripture has three different levels of allegorical meaning. Let's go over those now. The bottom is the literal meaning. The literal meaning is not allegorical at all. That's what the literal means. It's not allegorical. What's actually there? What's actually being said? The literal meaning. Then they have the level above that is the allegorical meaning. And specifically, the way we should read the Bible is that the Old Testament is an allegory of the New Testament. That the Old Testament prefigures the New Testament. It shows us signs of the New Testament. That the things that happen in the Old Testament point to the New Testament. Abraham and Isaac pointing towards the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And then above that is the moral level of meaning. How does this allegorical understanding of Scripture that we get by seeing how the New Testament and the Old Testament speak to each other, how does that relate morally to me in my life? Two separate levels of allegorical meaning already. And then the third and highest level of allegorical meaning, says St. Thomas, is the anagogical meaning. To what extent does our understanding of the allegorical meaning of Scripture and its moral import to us correspond to our eternal destiny? Well, sometimes it's the four last things. Death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Everything in Scripture ultimately points to death, judgment, heaven, and hell. It's an anagogical level of meaning. Our eternal destiny, where we're made on this earth for one reason alone, that's to get to God. The Bible points us in a way, how do we do that? So, according to Thomas, and basically he's very much following up to Augustine before him, there are four levels of meaning, three levels of allegorical meaning for reading the scripture. Well, Dante, evidently, in one of his letters, believed that you should read the Divine Comedy in that way. But we're not going to go there. I had an argument with a Shakespeare scholar about whether we could or should read Shakespeare in that way. I'm not going to go there either. But I think that Tolkien would say you're not meant to read the Lord of the Rings that way. I think I can safely say that. So when, 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 when Tolkien says the Lord of the Rings is not an allegory, he's referring to that you shouldn't read it in this sort of formalistic way, looking at every event to its various allegorical meanings. And then there's the sort of allegory that Tolkien definitely did not like, and this is really what he's talking about. He should have made it clear. It's formal allegory, or crude allegory, such as the Pilgrim's Progress, where Christian is the Christian, where the giant despair is a giant despair. <laughs> Lewis does this very well, actually, in the Pilgrim's Regress, where John, who's the everyman figure, is taken captive, is imprisoned by the evil spirit of the age. And he's liberated from the spirit of the age by this beautiful woman in shining armor who arrives on a white horse. And her name is Reason. And Reason has two younger sisters, Philosophy and theology. Now, what is the technical term 
for what someone who writes formal allegories does. What is the woman called reason, or the lady called philosophy, the constellation of philosophy, or Christian in Pilgrim's Progress? Well, they are personified abstractions. In other words, they don't have a personality because they're not persons, they're not free for the uh, rounded characters, they're cardboard cutouts that are only there to represent an idea. We don't care whether uh, reason likes tea or coffee. We don't care if the lady philosophy prefers red wine or white wine, or no wine. Because she's not a person. She's an idea. She's a personified abstraction. Well, The Lord of the Rings is not that sort of book. And when Tolkien says he despises allegory, it's that sort of allegory that he's particularly thinking about. But then there's much more subtle forms of allegory. Tolkien first used the word applicability. That's his favorite word, applicability. So you see what happens in the story, and you see how applicable it is to the world beyond the story. Most particularly, of course, our own world, our own story in which we are living. Applicability. And I want to give you just one example of how Tolkien works in The Lord of the Rings. And this one example unlocks almost The Lord of the Rings, actually. And following the subtle allegorical techniques of the Middle Ages. That shouldn't surprise us. Tolkien, as well as being a linguist, was a medievalist. His uh, translation of Beowulf was published just this year. He wrote the seminal, still today is said by many to be the seminal, the most definitive essay on Beowulf, the monster of the critics. He translated to the Reign of the Green Knight, Old English, Middle English. He's a medievalist. Now, in Beowulf, I can't say too much about Beowulf, but I would say the first two parts of Beowulf are an engagement with the heresy of Pelagianism. I'm not going to talk about Pelagianism either. But that's the first two, is engagement with it. It's very subtly, he doesn't mention Pelagianism, but basically the, the, the way that the dragon, sorry, the way that Grendel and Grendel's mother have to be defeated requires grace, not the strength of human beings alone. Warrior strength is not sufficient to defeat evil. Whereas the Pelagians were saying, you don't need sacraments, you don't need uh, grace. All you have to do is listen to what Jesus says in Scripture and do it. In other words, you get to heaven with a triumph of your own will and obeying Christ. No grace necessary. And that was a very, very powerful heresy in Europe. Throughout the time, Bear was written, especially in England. That's where it's most rapid. But the third part of Beowulf, where the fight with the dragon, is a very different allegorical technique. By the way, that allegorical technique Tolkien uses, the first one, where he just, uh, will be, I'll show you the anti-Pelagian aspect of it in, in a moment, actually, we do that as well. But in the third part of Beowulf, Beowulf is, he goes off to fight the dragon. Of course, in medieval typology, the dragon is a symbol for Satan, serpent, Going to fight the dragon, he 
points, 12 followers. Now, those of, those of us who have our allegorical antennae attuned here, want to think, okay, someone's appointing 12 followers. Sounds a bit like apostles. What's going on here? One of those 12 caused the problem by stealing from the planet the traitor. When Beowulf faces the dragon, of the other 11 apostles that are still left, sorry, apostles, sorry, followers, <laughs> of the 11 followers still left, 10 of them run away into the woods. Only one of them has the courage to stand there beside Beowulf as he fights the dragon. And weakly after the one that stands back later chastises the other ten for their cowardice, as he should. <laughs> but right at the end of the poem, they built a burial mound on a headland so that those travelling through life can always see the memorial to the great King Beowulf who slew the dragon. And there are twelve followers. Going round and round, so some sort of timeless ritual, the burial mound. So again, the act of the act of the apostles of replacing Judas to make the number back up to twelve. Now, there's no mention of Jesus anywhere in Beowulf, but clearly the numerical signifiers are applicable to use Tolkien's terminology in such a way that we're meant to see parallels and meant to derive lessons from the parallel that we see. So how does Tolkien use this medieval method of allegory, or applicability, if we want to avoid uh, the word allegory? Or do we know the date on which the ring is destroyed? Anybody? March the 25th, thank you. March the 25th. That date, it's like 12 followers in Beowulf, is the signifier that serves as a key that unlocks the deepest meaning of the Lord of the Rings. Slip that date in my slip it here with great subtlety. The opposite form of allegory you've been bludgeoned on the head by the point that the author wants to make. But March the 25th, what's March the 25th? Now I've given I've given talks at Ivy League schools on unlocking the Lord of the Rings, Princeton, Harvard, Columbia, state universities, and you say, March the 25th, emphatic, you know, uh, enforce. And I said, okay, let's make it easy, I'll give you a clue. What happens nine months after March the 25th? December 25th? Christmas! Santa Claus comes down the chimney. <laughs> Even in state universities, things aren't that bad. Jesus! Jesus was born. Okay. What happens nine months before that? Now, you know, Hunter Glass knows something about the facts of life. Those particular facts of life, anyway. Okay, so Jesus was conceived. Right. And then you say, at the State University or Columbia or, or Princeton, because life begins at conception, 
the Feast of the Annunciation is more important than Christmas. Because it's on March the 25th that the Word becomes flesh, not Christmas. It's on March the 25th when God becomes man, not Christmas. Which is why in several medieval countries, March the 25th was New Year's Day. And what is even, of course, Tolkien's a medievalist, he knows all this, of course. But Tolkien's also a medievalist, he also knew that traditionally the church has said that the date of the crucifixion is also March the 25th. This is now becoming by far the most important date in the Christian calendar. Now you might say, well, I mean, that's just tradition, that's fairy tales, who believes in fairy stories anyway? But think about it. I'm a miserable sinner. And I remember the date on which my father died. I remember the date on which my mother died. Do you think it's likely that Mary, the mother of Christ, would forget the date on which she saw her son being hanged from a tree? Or that St. John would have forgotten? Or for that matter, the ten cowards would run away and forget the day on which it happened? Of course not. It was passed down in tradition because people remembered the event and the day on which it happened. The reason we've forgotten is because we celebrate Easter now as a movable feast. So it's, March, you know, it's not March 25th every year, Good Friday can be any sort of date between certain parameters. So we forgot Hawking didn't forget. So March the 25th is the date of the crucifixion and the date of the Annunciation. The date in which the Word is made flesh when God becomes man and the date in which he dies. Put those two things together, well, that's our redemption when you add the resurrection in. Now, that's the date on which the ring is destroyed. What's this telling us about the ring? Well, what's destroyed on March the 25th? It's sin. Christ destroys sin. What is the ring. The one ring to rule them all and in the darkness find them. What is original sin? The one sin to rule them all and in the darkness find them. And the one ring and the one sin are destroyed on the same day because the one ring signifies the one sin. And then once you understand that, the rest of it starts to make astonishing sense. When you put the ring on, it's an act of sin. When you put the ring on, you disappear from the good world of grace that God made, and you become more visible than ever to the dark Lord. In the lands of shadow, with Tolkien's understanding of Augustinian understanding of evil, the absence of the light of goodness. Shadowlands. All right, I could say much more about the Lord of the Rings, but you get the point here that he used the same technique as the Beowulf poet, he knew so well, to signify great truths, without impeding the story in a formal allegorical way, without enslaving the imagination of the reader. Now, Narnia is slightly different. Slightly. You might even call it semantic. Because 
Lewis was also very sensitive to his work being called allegory. So he said that the uh, Chronicles of Narnia were not an allegory, they were a supposal. Lewis were a supposal. Now let's suppose that there are other worlds. And once you've supposed that there are other worlds, let's suppose how God might have made himself visible in those worlds. I'm happy to accept that. I don't want to argue with C.S. Lewis. I'm going to argue with Tolkien for no reason why not. But quite clearly, Aslan, in all seven of the Chronicles of Narnia, is a signifier of Christ. You don't have to take my word for it. Let's take Aslan's word for it, shall we? The end of the voyage of the Dawn Treader. When Aslan tells Lucy and Edmund they won't be allowed to come back anymore. And Lucy's very upset. It isn't Narnia, you know, sobbed Lucy. It's you. We shan't meet you there. How can we live never meeting you? But we shall meet you, dear one, said Aslan. Uh, are you there too, sir? said Edmund. I am, said Aslan. I am, said Aslan. <laughs> but there I have another name. I am, thank you. <laughs> but there I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name. This was the very reason why you were brought to Narnia. That by knowing me here for a little, you may know me better there. And this is Lewis, this is Aslan, I should say, not just speaking to Lucy and Edmund, but speaking to us, to the readers. So yes, all right, I'm happy to accept the nicety, the technicality that the Lord of the Mitz, sorry, the Chronicles of Narnia are supposed also not allegories. But they're certainly quite clearly signifiers of the Christian story in, in all sorts of ways. Um, Narnia is always, so Lewis is always more didactic. Lewis is always a teacher and even a preacher. And he's not as subtle as Tolkien. And you might, that's a good thing or a bad thing. Depends, I suppose, whether, well, your vision view of what literature should be and what literature should do is another discussion for another talk. <coughs> but um, the, when I'm, sorry, I just make sure I'm in the right stuff here. Yes. Um, in the um, sorry, yeah, okay. So in the Chronicles of Narnia. The magician's nephew, you see the creation story, where Aslan sings Narnia into being. You see parallels here, of course, for those of you that have read the Silmarillion, with uh, the great music of creation. God as the composer of the great music of creation. So in both cases, what do we have? God the artist. As a case of opera singer, in, uh, in uh, case of 
Ubata, the All-Father, the Father of All-God, in the creation myth in the Silver Meridian, and how Middle Earth comes into being. God is the composer of the symphony of creation. And again, profound theology. Because what God does, let us say, here is my symphony of creation. You sit back and listen and enjoy. Passive contentment. He says, this is the score. This is the great music I have composed of creation. Play it. All of us are in the orchestra. This is why it's not always played as it should be. <laughs> and Melkor, the Elvish means mighty one, the mightiest of the angels, decided that he didn't want to try to play in tune. He starts introducing his own discord, his own discordant themes into the great music. And then even more profound theology. God says to Melchor, to Satan, that Satan has to understand that there's no theme that he will weave into the great music that God will not turn into a theme that's subsumed within the whole, that's more beautiful than Satan's wildest imagination. No evil that, that Satan can bring into the great music that God won't weave into something more beautiful. We think, of course, of Adam and Eve, the old Adam, without which there would not be a new Adam, without which there would not be the incarnation and the resurrection. You also see in Lydia's nephew plucking at the fruit, where he says, with a sign outside the garden, is, you know, take it if you have permission. But if you take it without permission, you'll get your heart's desire and despair. Get your heart's desire and despair. You'll become your precious. you become addicted to it. you become a slave to it. To the sin. And of course the sin is the sin in the apple. Of course not. How can the sin be in the apple? It's made by God. The sin is in the bucket. The choice. In the light of which wardrobe we get the, uh, obviously, an allegory, a supposal that you prefer, of the death and resurrection of Christ. And again we have this wonderful theology, because the white witch talks about the deep magic <coughs> from the dawn of time. The dip of traitor, traitor, sinner to her. Why, why? Justice must be done. It's a temptation to address to God. So how just are you? Are you really the God of justice? Well, because we have this, oh, you made it up, I didn't. The magic from the dawn of time. That Edmund the traitor is mine. I demand him. And Aslan offers himself instead. 
And the white goes, this is great, I'll kill Aslan and I'll kill Edmund anyway. Perfect. Get him out of the way and I'll do whatever I like. Understand. So it doesn't understand that before the deep magic from the dawn of time, there was the deeper magic from before the dawn of time. From God himself. But if God sacrifices himself for the sinner, the death itself is reversed. White witch doesn't understand that. It's all by We could go on, um, but, but there's a limited amount of time, um, and I want to leave time for questions as well. So I'm going to um, not say too much on, on the, uh, most of the others, except to say that um, the last battle kings that preceded Lewis absolutely at his best. Um, when um, the last 30 or so pages of the last battle have some of the most profound eschatological theology. Theology of the end times. That you're ever going to read anywhere. And the brilliance of Lewis is it's in a children's book. And I love the way it ends. First of all, of course, the whole cosmos implodes into a stable center of the cosmos. And Lewis gets this idea from Chester. In, uh, the everlasting man, that book that, that's said that when he's, Lewis said, sort of a Christian outline of history laid out before him, the first one away that makes sense. The first half of the everlasting man begins with a chapter called The Man in the Cave. The second part begins with a chapter called The God in the Cave. And how that changes everything. But the whole history before it points to the cave. All history since it points to the cave. It's the center of this world. So Lewis takes this idea. When Narnia comes to an end, it all implodes into the cave, into the stable. And it ends with revelation. And I think I think it's I think it's is it Lucy? Here it says in our world too there was something in a stable that was bigger than the whole world. And it ends with revelation the chronicles of Narnia are only the beginning of a true story, quoting here, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. Now this is the ultimate happy ending. It's not just they live happy ever after. They lived happy ever after, forever and ever, and forever and ever it gets happier and happier. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank God the Christian imagination of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Thank you. Okay, we, we have the room for longer, and I'm in no hurry to go anywhere. Um, so if uh, obviously people need to leave, please feel free to do so. If you want to leave, please feel free to do so. Please do And I won't give a question on the way out of the room. Those of you that have time, uh, I'll have to take questions and do my best to answer them. Yes.
art design of despair uh, and how that connects to uh, Gollum's addiction to the ring in uh, The Lord of the Rings. Excellent question. Um, okay. um, excellent question. Um, basically, the important thing here, we get this very much a Dante's Divine Comedy, is that God, God does not send anybody to hell. People, if people are in hell, they're there because that's where they want to be. They have their heart's desire and despair. So, for instance, when Gollum falls into fire of Mount Doom, he doesn't say, oh dear, I think I've made a mistake. He says, precious! It's his happy ending. He's got what he wants. He has his heart's desire. Now, like you mentioned that, the one thing I really do want to say about the Lord of the Rings, very briefly, is the most brilliant part of the Lord of the Rings is the bit when you first read it, you really did not like it at all. On the assumption that we have, oh, even better, I love you, thank you. <laughs> the Lord of the Rings. If it hasn't been spoiled to us by an older sibling who's told us the story, or, or even worse, by watching Peter Jackson's movie before reading the book. <laughs> We're reading it for the first time in its virgin territory for us. And we followed loyally with Sam, Frodo, all the way through his journey for 900 pages, through Mordor. And he gets to the easy bit. Mount Doom, there's the fire. Easy bit. I'm going to demonstrate. <laughs> so easy, I'm going to do it again. And for, for 900 pages, we've got a photo. He gets there, but he doesn't do it. And we're angry. Frodo, you are a miserable loser. <laughs> You've dragged me all this way for this. And then you think, hang on a second, it's not Frodo's fault, it's Tolkien's fault. Poor Frodo had no choice. <laughs> Tolkien, right, wrote the thing. And yet, Tolkien, you miserable loser, dragging me under false pretenses all this way for 900 pages for this to happen. And then even when Gollum comes in and they struggle and Gollum falls in, we're not really satisfied because we want our heroes to be heroes. We want you know, some sort of miserable loser Gollum to come in and make things work. But then we realize this is the coup de grace, literally, race. This is the most brilliant part of the whole story. And the most profound, and the one that parallels the allegory of Beowulf, that the necessity of grace. Because a Christian believes you cannot overcome the power of evil to a triumph of the will. Nazis believe that, Friedrich Nietzsche believed that, the Pelagians believe that, but the Christian believes that you have to cooperate, search order, your will is important, but without grace, you cannot defeat evil. Then you think, oh, what column? Grace? Oh, come on. But think about it. Right at the beginning of the story, 
Frodo says, I wish Uncle Bilbo had killed that miserable creature when he had the chance. It's a pity he didn't. And Gandalf says, pity? It's pity the state is had. And later on in the story, when Frodo has the opportunity to kill Gollum, the bit of Paul, talking repeats verbatim, almost word for word, Gandalf speaks about pity. So Gandalf, Tolkien wants us to remember this, it's quite important. He's repeating a whole passage. And Frodo says, now I do see him, I do pity him. And Frodo spares him. Later on, Sam has his chance to kill Gollum and also spares him. So on three separate occasions, the hobbits have passed the most difficult test that God gives us, the most difficult commandment that God gives us, to love our enemy. And if any of them had failed that test, God would not have been there, he would triumph. So this is the reward of virtue in grace being given. Profound. So the importance of grace, but also the importance of freedom. Because you know, I mentioned briefly, I don't know if any of you are chapter this morning, but about love and being about the other, laying down your life for your friends. The one thing that's absolutely necessary for love, God is love, God wants to make us in his image. He wants us able to love. The one thing that's absolutely essential for love is freedom. Because love is not a feeling, you have to be free to feel something. Love is an action, you have to be free to choose it. To lay down your life for the other is a choice. And if you're not free, you can't choose. So in order for our God to make us lovers in his image, he has to give us freedom. Knowing, of course, what that's going to cost him. But because he practices what he preaches and teaches and does, he's also willing to lay down his life for us. Because he's a lover. So, if Gollum wants to freely choose his sin over the love of God, God won't refuse him. Because to refuse him is to refuse freedom. So we are free to go to hell. Now, so be If we're addicted, how free is an addict? How free is God by the end of the story? The problem, of course, <coughs> it was his freely choosing to use the addictive substance for a period of time that led to him becoming an addict. So even though he's no longer free, because he's a slave to sin, as St. Paul tells us we will be. He's a slave to sin because he freely chose the slavery. Does that mean he's in hell? Well, I don't believe in judging any fictional characters. <laughs> because I'm not gone. But I would say that Frodo, after Gollum falls, in his discussion with Sam, says, you know, he carried the ring for a long while. 
let's not judge. But let's not judge. But there is a judge. And uh, he will judge. <coughs> and his judgment will be both just and personal. Very, very good question. The point is that we might we may deserve to go in justice to hell. The point is by freely choosing to go to hell, we deserve to go there. It's just that we go there. So God as judge is merely saying, This is what you want, this is what you've chosen, I give it to you. Your absence from me, eternity, is what you desire, you have your heart's desire and despair. Because he may be merciful, and even though we deserve it, you may not get it. But that, again, not for us to judge. Yeah. Did you have any questions? Yeah, thank you. So I may not be at your evening event, so I wanted to ask you a question. Um, obviously, these books were extremely profound in your own journey. Where were you in the lapse from uh, the white supremacist to these books? And tell us a little bit about that configuration that you actually obviously had a visual for yourself well, first of all, I think I'm under I'm under a personal embargo not to give the this talk now. Um, <laughs> there's a limit to how much I, I can say now, I, I should say now, and therefore will say now. Um, but I, what I would say uh, is that I didn't have the understanding of the Lord of Rings of Narnia when I first read the book that I have now. I would also say that uh, I, I was deprived as a child from... Uh, my, my parents never, never read to me uh, as a child. Um, and as a consequence, thoroughly enjoying reading these children's literature, these great works of children's literature to my own six-year-old daughter, and I read all the Chronicles of Narnia, The Hobbit, and other things. Um, and I've really sort of been careless to get my second childhood from that experience. Uh, so I know that I've read all these books as adults. A lot of them you write on my journey prior to my conversion. Um, but I didn't necessarily pick in the Lord of the Rings get or that the profundity on the first reading, nobody gets on the first reading. Um, you either have to read books about it at the same time as they get like a fast, or you have to read it many times to start emerging. Um, but I would say that I read The Lord of the Rings for the first time during my second prison sentence. And that's, um, you know, I, 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 um, that's a teaser for tonight. <laughs> second prison sentence. But that's that thick, and I've been meaning to read it for years, you know, and I thought, I don't have time. And I found myself in solitary confinement at the beginning of the 12 month prison sentence. Well, it's the perfect time to read this. And that's when I first read the book. So, the rest about the role of Tolkien and Lewis and Chesterton and my conversion, I'll, I'll, I'll discuss tonight. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, I'm thinking about description and imagination. I mean, do you notice if there's any difference um, based on the fact that Tolkien is. Catholic, Lewis is a high church Anglican, you know, those in some ways are very similar, you know, in some ways there are real theological differences. Um, do those theological differences express themselves in any way in their respective Christian imagination? Is there a Catholic imagination and a high church Anglican imagination? <laughs> um, I think that ultimately the imagination is uh, one of the marks of God's image in us. Love is one, reason is another, 
Um, humor is another one. Animals don't laugh. Um, but, but certainly imagination is another mark of God's image in us. So, um, for instance, so you, you get great works of literature that are bad morality. And you might have a whole nice bit of a problem, isn't it? Now, sometimes I say to people, there are four types of books. There are good, good books that everyone should read. There's bad, bad books that nobody should read. There's good, bad books that perhaps we should read, and bad, good books that perhaps we should read. Uh, because a, a, good, a good, bad book would be good morality, bad literature. Maybe if you need the morality in bad literature, I don't normally. Um, you read it. Then you get a bad, good book. Bad morality, great literature. Why does God allow great, bad, or bad, great literature? Well, the same reason, I'm going to this way. It's a gift. It's given. God also gives us the gift of life. And if God removed the gift of life the first time we abused it by sinning, I'd be the only one here now. But God does not remove the gift when we abuse it. It's freely given. So if you're given five talents, you can use that five talents by, by casting it before swine. And of course, at the end, you'll be asked to, to account for what you did with those five talents. That great gift you were given, what did you do with that great gift you were given? And you'll be asked to perform. So, so first of all, I've, I've sort of uh, sized up the question in a way because the most important thing is, it's a gift given. Listen, in, in Shakespeare, by the way, it's another very important thing. In Shakespeare, you know, when Shakespeare used the word O, O-W-E, you know, we owe our life, it's often glossed as own. We don't own our lives. We owe our lives. Shakespeare knew that, that's why he was owed. If we owned our lives, we wouldn't give them up. We wouldn't have it, have it taken away from us against our will when we die. Or come into the world when we didn't choose. We don't own our lives, we owe our lives. So it's a gift given that we have as a price that comes with it that we're meant to pay. Same for the gift of the imagination. So the most important thing is that it's a, it's a supernatural gift given by God that we're meant to use for the glorification of God. Now, uh, Christian imagination, of course, does that. It gives back to the giver of the gift, the gift itself, in, in glory. That's what it should do, and great Christian literature does that. I don't think there's a, uh, a huge difference between so-called Catholic and non-Catholic Christian literature in this. Now, of course, there are certain <coughs> aspects that would be a manifestation of something specifically Catholic. It, which would be in Lord of the Rings and wouldn't be in Narnia. Such as, for instance, uh, Lembas in the Lord of the Rings. Now, do you, want, do you know what Lembas means in Elvish? Well, Lembas in Elvish means life bread or bread of life. And when Frodo and Sam are going through Mordor, the valley of death, where there is no food that can be eaten, they live solely on the bread of life. And this is a bit of extremely sacramental. Um, and not just sacramental, but I'd say Eucharist, you know, Catholic understanding of Eucharist. 
uh, Tolkien also says that he put all of his love for the Blessed Virgin Mary in his characterization of Galadriel. Um, whereas on the other hand, you know, uh, I suppose at awkward moments in that hideous strength. Who gives her the hideous strength by the followers? Okay. Uh, there's a moment in that when Merlin has, has, he, has emerged, has returned from medieval past. And evil seems to be everywhere. So he asks the question, well, you know, what about the king? And there's this hierarchy of political power. You know, where are they? I said, well, they, they, they serve the other side, or they're not interested, or what have you. But in that hierarchy, in a medieval imagination, the last thing to be asked would be, well, what about the Pope? And the question's not asked because it's this awkward silence, basically. Now, of course, Lewis could have said, yeah, he could have said, could have said, what about the Pope? And 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 um, could have been told, well, he's as corrupt as the rest of them. You know, don't expect any, any good to come from that direction. So he could have used it as an excuse to attack papacy, attack Catholicism, and he chose not to do it, and that's significant. But he also could not, of course, bring himself to say, well, the Pope, of course, is, uh, is the answer. We really should go to the Pope, you know, because that would matter. First, we put fit in the story, but secondly, you know, he, he could not say that in his position as an Anglican. So, what you have is an awkward silence here. He sets up a scene with a medieval uh, mind and doesn't allow the medieval mind to run its course because to do so would lead, lead to an awkward question he's not prepared to answer. So, these are, these are examples, but I would call these niceties, right? And by the word, the word nice can find its terms. The word nice, by the way, is nasty. Never use it. And literally, you know the word nice in Shakespeare means fastidious, something not very pleasant. And in Chaucer's time, nice actually meant nasty. If you said to Chaucer, have a nice day, he'd punch you on the nose. <laughs> and that's where we get the word nicious from, uh, which means nasty and, and, and nicety. Oh, so much these nice niceties aren't really nice. So the point is that like, these are, are, are largely niceties. That they, you know, that they, yes, they're significant, but they're not the core. The heart, I think, of Lewis and Tolkien share is a common Christianity. Yeah, just one very quickly, that, that, that sacramentality is a little bit. Bolham is there. 
Bohemian's death follows exactly the formula for sacking the penalty of confession. There has to be uh, contrition, sorrow for the sin, satisfaction, making amends through uh, an act of penance. In Bohemian's case, no greater love has any man that lay down his life for his friends. So he's made satisfaction for his sin for which he's contrived. And then when he says, I have failed, Aragorn, who in this case is in persona Christi in the person of Christ, the king, uh, gives him absolution. He says, no, you haven't failed, you've won a great victory. So again, the, the, the formula of the sacrament of confession being followed there is the death of Bohemian. Yep. No, there were, there, were, there, were, there were two, the two of, I wrote a book with C.S. Lewis in the Catholic Church, and I wrote it as an act of friendship for Lewis, but I would sort of maybe, maybe ask you if nothing else to read the preface, where I say basically this book is meant, there are four types of people, if you like, people that don't like the Catholic Church and don't like Lewis, well they're not going to be interested in reading the book, so I'm obviously not writing for them. There are people who like Lewis and don't like the Catholic Church, I hope they'll read it. The people that don't like Lewis and like the Catholic Church are not interested whether they read it or not. This is a 